Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dr Kate Devlin. In 2002, Elon Musk set up SpaceX with the lofty goal of reducing the cost of space travel and, eventually, pursuing the colonisation of Mars. In the last 20 years, SpaceX have made some incredible breakthroughs. They were the first private company to send humans into orbit. They developed reusable spacecraft, and I'm sure we all remember when they sent a Tesla into space. Because of these achievements, SpaceX is now a household name and Elon Musk is one of the richest men on the planet. But despite what he may want you to believe, Musk doesn't have a monopoly in space. Hundreds of startups across the world are trying to make science fiction ideas a reality. From opening up mining colonies on the moon to intergalactic cruise ships, the future is bright for space entrepreneurs. And governments are getting in on the action too, with increasing competition to get the tech upper hand by going to outer space. But what does that mean for the rest of us? And how will developments in space change the way we live here on Earth? To give me the rundown of the most exciting space startups, I'm joined by physicist and founder of Terraform Industries, Dr Casey Handmere. Casey, welcome to the bunker. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me start by asking you, how is SpaceX doing and how is it living up to making Musk's goals a reality? SpaceX seems to be doing really well right now. Um, it's been at it for 21 years, but uh, they're launching rockets more than once a week, which is more than anyone would have dreamed was possible when they started out. And looking at the big players in the field right now, who then are the rising stars in the market outside of SpaceX? Uh, that's a great question. Um, actually, Ashley Vance, who's a well-known writer in this area, just published a fabulous book called When the Heavens Went on Sale to talk about a number of the other companies uh, attempting to build rockets and launch them, including um, Firefly and Astra, as well as SpaceX and, and Rocket Lab, and of course, there's Virgin Orbit and Blue Origin and a bunch of other companies. Um, unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that uh, until you've reached orbit, it's very hard to know if you're doing the right thing. And um, and actually, I think both Astra and um, Virgin Orbit did successfully reach orbit, but their success rate was not high and they weren't able to improve it. And um, so as of today, uh, Virgin Orbit has officially gone out of business. Firefly and Astra are burning cash at a rate that does not seem compatible with long-term survival. So it's a it's a bit of a bit of a challenge there. Um, it's it's super tough, right? Successfully building a private company that can launch rockets to space, um, it requires solving a huge variety of problems and not all of them technical. Uh, so it's it's a really tough really tough problem. But you know, it's not to say that that any of the people involved in this in these companies couldn't successfully go out and raise a couple of hundred million more dollars and try again with having you know learned from the mistakes they made the first time around and uh, and succeed. So you know, SpaceX is really only you know one one or two successful competitor startups away from from losing market share. Um, but they they do currently have a an incredible lead uh, on on essentially all facets of the business. So in the past, the space race seemed to really focus on national identity. Why is it that the modern space race is more defined by branding and personalities rather than nationalism? I think that um, you know the original space race grew out of development of ICBMs, which are obviously a, a national technology, um, and required the investment of trillions of dollars, which is you know beyond the spending power of all but the richest governments on earth. Um, but nowadays, we've seen a, you know, a slight reduction in the amount of money that needs to be spent, with a commensurate increase in the amount of demand, and that enables uh, servicing by sufficiently. You know, aggressive and clever private companies, but it's important to remember that even in the early days, you know, NASA itself was not necessarily building rockets; uh, it was contracting with with private companies. So it's you know, everything old is new again. So coming back down to Earth for a moment, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on making other planets habitable, but is this something that we could actually use here when we're facing a climate crisis? 
Well, of course, and there's been a lot of speculation one way or the other, uh, but that, that's that's significantly more speculative than, than the nuts and bolts of, of kind of SpaceX's current day-to-day operations, even though what they're doing also appears to be science fiction. Can you talk me a little through that? I mean, what is it that makes it harder on, on Earth than it does in space? Well, I mean, the the day-to-day of of building and launching rockets, putting satellites in space, um, and then you know developing hardware for lunar exploration. This is all stuff that's been done 50 years ago. Just just the sheer requirement of, of material and investment required to you know either terraform Mars or terraform some other planet or, or change Earth's climate. It's um, it, it's really many orders of magnitude beyond that in terms of in terms of the sheer amount of effort required. Um, just to kind of put that in perspective, yes, huma- humans have managed to warm the Earth by a couple of degrees, maybe one one or so degrees. Um, but that's been like concerted effort by nearly every human alive uh, for the last 200 years in. You know, our entire industrial economy uh, tearing carbon out of the ground and, and burning it, and um, so it's you know it's really I, I can't exaggerate here. It's um, it takes a lot of effort to to really turn the ship there. SpaceX moved their operations to Texas. Could we see a migration away from Silicon Valley when it comes to space? And if so, would Texas be the logical home of space tech? Uh, I think Texas is. You know, quite business friendly in many ways, um, which is which is certainly helpful when it comes to rockets because they're very noisy. Uh, but it's a common misconception actually that um, that SpaceX is based in Silicon Valley. SpaceX was actually always based in, in Los Angeles and in Southern California, and they've almost always had operations in Texas because they they were doing engine tests there since the very early days. Uh, and so, you know, SpaceX um, currently has has operations in um, in in the western part of the United States and Southern California. Uh, and also in, in several different locations in Texas, uh, and also in in Florida, where they do a lot of launches, and they've also got offices, you know, in other parts of the world. So um, it, now it's it's really a it's a very very large company. So it, it sounds like there's an awful lot going on in aerospace technology at the moment. So what are the recent advancements that have got you excited about the future of the industry? Well, just on this front, I would say that um, you know all of us have been holding our breath for years now, waiting for a Starship to launch. Um, it's been it's been clear to, to people watching closely that that SpaceX could have lit that candle anytime they wanted, uh, you know, up to a constant in in uh, regulatory approval. Um, but that the design teams and so on were still rapidly iterating uh, and improving the design. But you know, still they they launched that rocket and and um, I mean almost everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and the thing still flew for four minutes, and uh, it was absolutely glorious, um, and it really. Uh, it kind of speaks to the, the dedication and the ambition of, of the team down there in, in South Texas, which I've had the privilege of visiting and, and just how hard they're trying to make that thing work because it's really, in, in many ways, a revolutionary transportation product. Uh, it really changes the way that, that we can access space for the better. I can really hear the excitement in your voice there when you talk about that. Can you, can you tell us a little about, about what it's like to visit there at SpaceX in Texas? Okay, so um, I don't, actually don't know exactly where your your um, audience is, but I suspect some of them in the UK. Uh, Texas is a little bit different to the UK, and in particular, this part of Texas is is quite remote. It, it's kind of desolate. It's a it's a marine estuary, um, but you know, this kind of series of coastal sand dunes, and and uh, and then there's these areas where where SpaceX has basically taken over a couple of islands that are just a few feet above sea level, and and proceeded to you know, as as you all seen, like start with a tent, and then you know, start welding together a water tower, and then slap a rocket on it, and then launch it, and then you know, iterate. And and nowadays. Um, it's it's fairly astounding what's going on there. So there's there's about three hundred thousand square feet, which is about thirty thousand square meters, uh, under under cover of, uh, of manufacturing space, which is you know one of the larger factories in the world. Um, obviously, it has to be large because the rocket is huge. Uh, and then the, there are several um, you know high bays, which are basically you know, skyscrapers with holes in the sides, uh, where where they can assemble the the rings, the components of the of the rocket, and uh, and move them around by crane. Uh, and then you know, put them on trucks and move them down to the launch site. And then when I was there, the booster was on the on the launch pad, waiting for the Starship to be uh, integrated on top and then launched. 
Uh, and it's just, it's at a scale that, that boggles the mind. Um, you know, I think rockets are a technology that exists across many sizes. Probably the, the SpaceX's main competitor in terms of technology and success is a company called Rocket Lab, which is based in New Zealand originally. Uh, and their rocket, which I've also uh, had the, the privilege of seeing um, shortly before, before its first launch, uh, is, is comparatively tiny. You can fit it on the back of a truck, um, you know, a modest-sized truck. Uh, you could fit it in an airplane. Um, I mean, if your house had a long enough corridor, you could kind of fit it in there. Uh, so that's it's very exciting. Um, but the, the Starship rocket is, is absolutely enormous. It's a behemoth. Um, and, and everything there is on a, on a, a grand scale. I mean, they say that everything's bigger in Texas, but, but, uh, there, there you are, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere in this kind of like desolate, salty, marshy desert. And then suddenly there's this factory that is producing rockets that have the best chance we've ever seen in the history of humanity of taking large numbers of humans into space and then having them live there. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. So space tourism has always been one of those sci-fi tropes, but how do you imagine that sector might grow in the future? Well, I think, um, you know, as I said before, as the price comes down, uh, we tend to see additional sources of demand, uh, and this is well known. Um, and uh, and actually, you know, some of the first space tourists occurred, I think, in the 90s, but we've seen significantly more of that recently. We're, we're now into the, you know, almost the tens of, of space tourists, particularly with suborbital flight. And um, and I can only hope that uh, further developments of Starship and and so on continue to to lower the cost of of, of human spaceflight uh, to the point where, you know, instead of it costing a couple of million dollars a day to put someone in space, maybe it only costs a thousand dollars a day, uh, which is you know comparable to an extremely expensive vacation, um, uh, or maybe even less. And and it just you know increases the the number of organizations that can afford to operate with you know meaningful quantities of humans in space from like one or two to potentially hundreds or even thousands. And that means that the opportunity will exist for, you know, someone who whose career might previously have taken them on occasion to the Large Hadron Collider at CERN or, you know, some advanced synchrotron light source, you know, some other rather expensive piece of scientific equipment. Um, you know, maybe now it'll be cheaper to operate that sort of thing in space or to do similar types of experiments in space. Uh, so, so whereas, you know, maybe in the past, it would be the, the highlight of a career to, to go and work on a synchrotron or to work in Antarctica or something, maybe you know, space will be in that same kind of, uh, same kind of tier, which is, uh, which would be super cool. Like that'd be, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, could be living and working in space or, 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 you know, flying up there and bouncing around in a space station. And, and would you like to go? Yeah, I think it'd be pretty neat. <laughs> so if you had to place a bet on a specific company being the next SpaceX and you can't say your own, uh, which would it be? Oh, well, Terraform Industries, my company is, is not a launch company. Uh, we're, we're a synthetic fuel company. So like, um, yeah, you know, we may we may end up someday doing something in space. Uh, I mean, I would I would not be opposed to that, but um, but we're not a launch company. Uh, in terms of companies that that may come up and give give SpaceX a run for their money, um, this is a bit difficult. It's a little bit like asking like what electric car company is going to compete with Tesla, um, because not only is, is you know Tesla many many years ahead of the competition, they're also increasing their lead, and that's kind of the situation we see with SpaceX as well. Um, but that said, you know the the talent at SpaceX is fungible. Uh, people get hired out of SpaceX every day. Um, you know, Blue Origin has plenty of money. Uh, it'd like, be nice to see them reach orbit. Um, you know, uh, Rocket Lab has reached orbit uh, now dozens of times uh, with, with their rather small rocket. It'll be interesting to see if they can if they can scale up the size of their rocket there and, and stay in business. Uh, and then, of course, foreign governments, um, you know, essentially, if they got out of their own way, might be able to meaningfully compete. Um, but particularly, unfortunately, we see with like the Europeans, the Chinese, and the Russians, um, and, and you know, to a lesser extent, maybe the Japanese and Indians who also do national space programs with their own indigenous launch vehicles. Um, it seems that the primary obstacle to them competing effectively with SpaceX is admitting that there's a problem. Um, and so it'd be really nice to see that that kind of uh, barrier be lifted. 
So I'd like to ask you about that. So is there any hope for us over here in Europe or the UK? Do you think we can make it in the space race? That's two separate questions. Um, <laughs> well, so I think the UK can be, I think the UK in particular can be proud of, of its, uh, you know, consistent contributions to technology. Just last night, because uh, I'm a geek, I was, I was writing down a family tree of all, all the world's jet engines. And of course, uh, some of the first uh, successful jet engines were built and tested in the UK, um, not to mention, you know, the earlier parts of the industrial revolution. Um, but, um, you know, UK has a slight geographic disadvantage, at least under current rocket paradigms, because um, generally speaking, rockets are launched to the east and UK doesn't have like lots and lots of ocean immediately to, to its east. I mean, I guess you could launch from Gibraltar or something, but, you know, maybe maybe when rockets are reliable enough that they're, they're considered like planes, then it's not such a big deal to fly over other people's territory because um, you're not like dropping rocket stages on on on, on other people's cities. Um, so that, that's the thing. But I think that, you know, the UK uh, would do would do well to kind of focus on on its existing strengths, particularly in, in scientific exploration, uh, you know, spacecraft, uh, satellite development and so on, and just kind of stop looking for some universal panacea and just realize that like actually, you know, developing the talent and the technique and the skills in these areas is, is a decade decades long process and, and you can't just kind of give up uh, or, or hope to import it. Uh, UK is actually the only country on earth to have uh, had independent space access twice and lost it twice, um, which I think is not something to be proud of. Uh, and then the, then the European Union in general, well, I'm, I'm very far from an expert, but I would say that, um, you know, it, it's finally come out now. I mean, what has been obvious to, to industry outsiders like myself, frankly, uh, for m- more than a decade is that, you know, the Ariane series of rockets is not positioned to compete with what Falcon 9 was 10 years ago, let alone what Falcon 9 is today, uh, let alone what Starship will be uh, in, the, in the immediate future. And, um, and the sooner they realize that, the sooner they'll they'll, you know, potentially be able to change course and, and actually put money into something that has a hope of succeeding. Um, and I think it's it's super important for Europe and, and the UK as well to have independent access to space, uh, be able to launch and build its own GPS satellites, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a critical geopolitical, um, you know, strategic security imperative. Uh, and and unfortunately, the organization, I think the people involved are probably well-intentioned, but the organization as a whole is acting like they don't intend to succeed, um, which is it's a real problem. It's a real problem. So is there something to be said for some form of better international collaboration on this? And I'm thinking in terms of recently, we've seen all these headlines about artificial intelligence and there's trying to get task force going so that we have some kind of global approach. Is that something that would work well for space as well? Um, I don't know. I'm I'm an Australian originally who migrated to the United States. So I think that my my views on the matter might be somewhat um, out of distribution, uh, which is to say that um, I don't think that that you know, regulation that mandates kind of global coordination is the answer, um, and I think that the politicians who who think that you know signing some bilateral agreement with the United States or with SpaceX or with I don't know someone else will magically solve the problems caused by decades of underinvestment in you know critical core capabilities and then you know failing to hold the organizations that are responsible for assuring this access accountable, are unlikely to solve the problem. Right. And unfortunately, like one thing that this always seems to be the case at NASA is that is that inviting in foreign participants into your program makes the program harder to cancel, but it also almost certainly makes it much more expensive to execute uh, just because of coordination problems. Um, and one of the reasons that that small companies like mine, small startups like SpaceX were able to take on the industrial titans and crush them was that they didn't have to pay those coordination overheads. Right. They're able to get all the people whose decisions mattered in the same small room and hammer it out in kind of in a skunk works like fashion. Um, and and it's it's really the only thing that these tiny startups have going for them. Um, it's the only way they can they can really compete. And unfortunately, you know, UK and EU now is is kind of an underdog position where people, the key decision makers, they need to be empowered. They need to be told this is your mission. You have to achieve it. Yeah, they have to be given resources. And then the people 
you know, the overseers have to get out of the way, right? They have to they have to be given a long leash and allowed to actually solve the problem as opposed to having a constant interference. So I, I, as I said, my views on the matter may be, may be a minority and, and, and often political realities um, kind of dictate the structure of these programs. But unfortunately, like, you know, politics is, is in some ways negotiable, but physics is not. And um, the harder your problem, the harder your program, the more physics is going to kick your ass when you screw it up. Politics is negotiable, physics is not. I think that's a good motto. <laughs> is there anything that you'd like to add that I haven't asked about? Well, I just think that, you know, um, I wouldn't say I'm the first generation. I might be the fourth or fifth generation of, of, of geek who grew up dreaming about space. And, and unfortunately, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my older compatriots or whatever spent their entire careers doing things that are meaningful and worthwhile, but, but nevertheless, you know, never really approached the same, um, to the same degree of nearness, the current level of takeoff, if that makes any sense. Um, it really feels like there's a momentum building now, and I think we should, we should do our best to maintain that. Um, I think that it's absolutely necessary uh, that the UK you know, continue to aggressively invest in the space uh, so that it's you know, younger, up-and-coming, early-career um, uh, engineers have something to do. Right, because like ultimately, that's a source of wealth in an organization, or a source of wealth in a in a civilization, is innovators who are inventing new things to do. And, and unfortunately, if they don't have worthy problems to work on, they'll they'll go and do something boring. Um, not that you know finance and law are necessarily boring, but they're not productive in the same way. Um, and uh, I think that you know, in some ways, I worry that the UK has lost sight of the fact that that wealth is generated by people inventing new things. So, is education going to be key to this? I think education is important, but but actually, I mean, the UK is not known for having poor education. In many ways, I think the UK probably has a pretty good educational system. It's able to identify the people who are very interested and have a lot of potential in these areas. It's able to get them the skills uh, and the access to knowledge that they need. Um, and obviously, we have the internet, we have YouTube, we have uh, various publicly available servers full of NASA technical documents that tell you essentially how to do all this stuff. Um, but you know what there what there doesn't exist is like you know the pipeline. How how does how does someone who's who's a freshly minted undergraduate degree in in aerospace engineering in the United Kingdom or in the EU, get to go and cut their teeth working alongside the the top people in a particular field trying to solve the hardest problems. And unfortunately, the answer is, uh, you know, at best, maybe they migrate to the United States. And that's really hard to do, especially for rocket technology. It's really, really hard to do because, you know, rockets are considered weapons technology. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, part of the reason that the uh, United States pays 20-something billion dollars a year to keep NASA in business is that having a you know, strategic reserve of, of 20,000 or so super geeks who know how to make rockets is, is critical uh, for national security. You can't just invent that the moment you need it. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, a lot of countries have lost sight of that fact. Um, you, you absolutely have to, have, you have, to, you have to put in the money and invest over long, long periods of time to make sure you have those capabilities and you have to maintain those capabilities. And if you don't, they'll just disappear. So I, I think right now, like, if the UK found itself you know, between uh, you know, absolute demise as, as, a, as a country and its ability to, to build and, and launch a new rocket uh, into space like it did in the 1960s with the Black Arrow, it may not be able to do it. And that's, that's a real worry. Um, maybe, maybe just as an experiment, someone, someone should test this theory and see if a new, new rocket company in the UK can actually successfully build and launch a rocket. Um, because I think there'd be a lot of people out there who would doubt that that's possible. There you go. That's one heck of a challenge. <laughs> Casey, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. That's uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras. And in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr. Kate Devlin. Thanks for listening. Good news. 
because your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. was written and presented by Dr. Kate Devlin. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>